This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Wisconsin's largest boat audit in state history found no machine errors in the November midterm election. The Wisconsin Elections Commission unanimously approved the results of the audit Thursday, where auditors hand-counted more than 200,000 ballots. They found only six human errors and no machine malfunctions or signs of hacking, reports the Associated Press. Five of the six errors were due to creases through unmarked ballot ovals, which caused the voting machines or which causes the voting machines to signal the ballot as overvoted. The sixth error was caused by a ballot filled out in green ink, and that led to a machine not identifying one of the marked ovals, an error that was likely missed because of how busy the polling site was. A federal judge has ruled that a civil rights lawsuit can proceed against Kyle Rittenhouse and the city and county of Kenosha. Anthony Huber was one of the three men shot by Rittenhouse during an August 2020 protest. Milwaukee Journal Sentinel is reporting that the lawsuit filed by the Huber family seeks to hold the municipalities and law enforcement officers liable for his death. Each defendant tried to dismiss the case by arguing that it failed to properly demonstrate how the defendants violated Huber's civil rights. Judge Lynn Edelman denied the motion to dismiss on Wednesday. The case will now to move to the discovery phase and a jury trial will be scheduled in the near future. The State Department of Transportation announced that its Wisconsin Rail Plan 2050 draft is available for comment through February 26th. DOT officials say that the plan establishes a long-term vision for freight and passenger rail travel. The first draft of the plan was released in March of last year and is set to be completed this year, replacing the current Wisconsin Rail Plan 2030. Federal law requires that states establish an official responsible for implementing strategies to enhance rail services in the public interest. Governor Tony Evers designated DOT Secretary Craig Thompson as Wisconsin's official. The 2020 plan will include policies involving railroad crossings, long-distance passenger rail, intercity rail, and rail data trends. The draft is available for review and comments at wisdotplans.gov. UW Parkside Chancellor Deborah Ford is resigning, making her the seventh leader to depart a UW campus over the past three years. The Wisconsin State Journal is reporting that the UW Board of Regents is still searching for a UW Platteville Chancellor to replace Dennis Shields, who left last spring. Ford is leaving Parkside to lead Indiana University Southeast in the metropolitan Louisville area. With her new role, she'll be closer to family. She and her husband, John, recently announced they'd be grandparents in the spring. And Friday is the last day to vote for your favorite names for the city of Madison's four featured snow handling vehicles. So don't let the opportunity drift by. You can bank on your favorites by going to the Wisconsin SaltWise website, that's wisaltwise.com, and clicking on the Name These Plows page. Do it before 8 p.m. so you can help candidates like Plowdy Duty, Pushy McDrifty Flakes, and Burt Reynolds over the top. 
And now on to today's top stories. <laughs> Today is Groundhog Day, and this year the city of Sun Prairie celebrated its 75th annual ceremony. As the sun came up at exactly 7-11 this morning, Mayor Paul Esser met with Jimmy the Groundhog to hear the Marmot's prediction for this year's winter season. What was Jimmy's forecast? Well, WRT reporter Christopher Cartwright went to Cannery Square in Sun Prairie to find out this morning. Whereas in the early morning of February 2nd, visitors from far and wide journeyed to Cannery Square in downtown Sun Prairie to hear Jimmy the Groundhog's answer to the age-old question, how many weeks of winter are left? Whatever the answer, be it known to all that Jimmy the Groundhog remains the most accurate and true prognosticator and is the standard by which all others are measured. Therefore, I, Paul Esser, Mayor of the City of Sun Prairie, do hereby proclaim February 2nd, 2023, Groundhog Day in the City of Sun Prairie, the Groundhog Capital of the World. He's back. All right, Rebecca. Yeah. I have talked to Jimmy. And he said, after that setup, I better get it right. And so I wrote it down. And here is what I have to say. This is what Jimmy told me. And this is now Jimmy talking. This isn't me. This is Jimmy. And Jimmy said, I have asked the mayor to say these words to you. I am pleased to have so many of my loyal supporters with me today to hear my forecast for the remainder of winter 2023. This is the 75th time we groundhogs have given you our prediction. So here's what Jimmy told me to tell you about the prediction. He said, on this cold, bright February 2nd, I, Jimmy the Groundhog, have consulted the skies over Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, and determined them to be sunny. So, I have seen my shadow. In consideration of this, I hereby proclaim that there will be six more weeks of winter. Oh, all right. All right. <laughs> On the heels of a major zoning change to increase housing density in Madison comes another proposal to do the same. This time, some city leaders are floating a proposal to add more flexibility to places zoned for single-family homes. What would that change look like? WORT reporter Faye Parks breaks it down. The proposal would affect about one-third of the city of Madison. It would allow more people to live together in places zoned for single-family homes. And the change, they proponents, is aimed at addressing one of Madison's ongoing crises, a lack of truly affordable housing and a need to increase housing density. The proposal would up the number of renters who can live in a house zoned as a single-family home from the current standard of two unrelated people up to five unrelated people in one home. And it would standardize occupancy limits across the board for all housing rather than using a different standard for renters and homeowners. In a public information meeting earlier today, Zoning Administrator Katie Bannon outlined three main reasons behind the proposal. One is to increase or improve equity. Second is to increase housing choice and access. And lastly, because the current practice has negative impacts. 
The plan commission has supported the changes, pointing to the need to update standards at a time when finding housing in Madison is both difficult and expensive. While the change could markedly improve the market for some renters, some homeowners are not so optimistic. Those opposed to the proposal say the proposed redefinition could change the nature of their neighborhood. What I haven't heard and what I think is being ignored is the rights of homeowners, of people who have invested hundreds of thousands of dollars to be, a, if for example, a single family a homeowner in a neighborhood. Those opposed also say they're wary of large property management companies infiltrating the neighborhood, of rental housing becoming run down, or disruption to their surroundings. But Bannon says it's unlikely rental companies will buy up houses. According to city research, there's not enough profit for landlords to do so. A couple of reasons we think this will be limited. Um, nationally, when we look, um, single-family house rentals are usually more um, small-scale operations. We find this to be true in Madison as well. Um, although there are some larger investment groups that do buy up groups of single-family houses, they tend to go to inexpensive houses in places like the Southwest, uh, places like Florida where property taxes are low and property maintenance costs are low. Um, both of those are higher in Wisconsin. And she adds that concerns about student occupation and noise are outside the scope of zoning regulation and are instead the police department's responsibility. A lot of how they approached it reminded me a little bit of how we in zoning enforcement approach enforcement and that, you know, the first time we get a call about something, really our goal instead of being punitive is to get compliance. So we're going to really talk with the person, explain um, what needs to be done, and then hopefully get compliance. And that's what happens in many of the cases. Bannon points to another reason to make a more flexible zoning code, equity. She says that sometimes the current standard gets abused and the city ends up with racist or classist complaints. And phone calls with complainants, we hear things like, these people don't belong here. I don't think these people are related. This household looks different and they shouldn't be allowed to live here. The proposal, floated by a contingent of alders and Mayor Satya Rhodes Conway, has gotten support from the plan commission. The commission is slated to take up the proposal two Mondays from now. The proposal comes as the average rent has jumped. According to Rent Cafe, the average rent for an 850-foot apartment in Madison is $1,491 a month. Even mayoral candidates are weighing in on the zoning change. At a mayoral debate on Monday, incumbent Satya Rhodes-Conway defended the position, calling it necessary to address the growing need for housing. Scott Kerr, a longtime employee of the city's traffic engineering division, agreed, saying that concerns over noisy college students were overblown. But Gloria Reyes firmly opposed the change, saying it would bring chaos to small neighborhoods across the city. There will be another public information meeting on the zoning change next Monday at 6 p.m. The proposal heads to the plan commission two Mondays from now, and then to the city council at the end of this month. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. The three finalist proposals for the redevelopment of John Nolan Drive made their public debut last week. Madison residents now have a month and a half to review each of the three proposals and voice their opinions on the matter. WORT reporter Aaron Ashley was on the scene for the unveiling. One of the first impressions many visitors to Madison receive is the view of the Capitol across Lake Monona from John Nolan Drive. Now, a coalition of city and private organizations are considering how to transform and revitalize this iconic waterfront, with goals of better connecting downtown Madison with Lake Monona waterfront and encouraging recreation. There are three designs to choose from, each from a different contractor and each radically different from the last. 
Last Thursday, those contractors unveiled their proposals to redevelop John Nolan Drive. I spoke with each of the teams about their vision. Anna Kors, a spokesperson for the international company Sasaki, described the considerations which went into the design process for their proposal. The, the first thing to note is that the lakefront is extremely hard to get to, so we need to figure out ways to improve intersections to improve access. And then once you're on the lake, we want to ensure that it is really a waterfront for everyone. Whether you're six months old or 99 years old, we want to ensure that there's different opportunities for people to engage in the water. A key focus of Sasaki's design proposal is on environmental impact and restoration. Course described what that would look like. Yeah, so this was an invited competition. We were shortlisted, um, one of three firms. And our proposal really takes a big look at what ecology means for Lake Monona, really restoring a water's edge, first and foremost, to ensure that as stormwater comes on, we're cleaning the water before it goes into Lake Monona. And then we're layering in recreation and programming and different activities and amenities. But that's not all. Weaving through this restored ecosystem are a series of trails and elevated canopy walkways where Madison residents can walk, run, and bike surrounded by nature. Anything from beer gardens to adventure playgrounds to quiet moments that are really um, an opportunity to to be uh, respectful of, of where you are in nature. The next proposal comes from Agency Landscape and Planning, a women-owned architectural firm. Here's Gina Ford, one of the co-founders of the company. Our proposal has uh, basically three fundamental principles. Um, one is really thinking about uh, restoration of a living shoreline, a green and blue shoreline uh, for Lake Monona for these two miles. Secondly, to really think about safe modes of travel for all, so separated bike paths and pedestrian ways, especially a boardwalk along the water. And then third, these three districts that really offer lots of different kinds of program appropriate to their context, so a signature urban park at Monona Terrace, um, a nature-engaged journey along the causeway, and then a community park at Olin Park. I asked Ford why agency decided to design three districts. This is a really big area. 1.7 miles shouldn't be all the same. And this site, this 1.7 mile long stretch, touches the downtown. It crosses the lakes with the causeways and the rail lines. And then it ends at Olin Park. And so each of those areas really has a different set of needs, community needs, different set of context, uh, different kinds of opportunities and constraints. And so it's a helpful planning tool for us to think about districts that really say different areas need different kinds of Responses. Last but not least is the proposal from James Corner Field Operations of New York. Architect Sarah Estimer shared the inspiration behind their proposal. Well, our proposal was called the Wild Lakeshore, um, and it really is about stewardship of the land, building on legacies um, and you know centuries of stewardship of this incredible place. Um, we're envisioning the lakeshore of to be transformed into a soft, thick shoreline, a resilient shoreline that really works to improve water quality in the lake. This wild lakeshore would have a series of four piers, each with a different character. There would be a pier for recreational activities for families, like beaches and barbecue spots, a pier for fishing near Monona Terrace, a pier north of the capital to expand access to the shore beyond the John Nolan area, and a nature center pier near Olin Park.
We're proposing development at Olin Park to be one of the very first phases, a place for families, for people to bring their children, a place that's free, welcoming, um, and promotes nature education. The full proposals and last week's recorded presentations are online at the City of Madison Parks Division website and available in person at the central office for the Parks Division. The next public Q&A meeting is in three weeks, on Thursday, February 23rd. That meeting will be virtual, and you can register online at cityofmadison.com news. The committee will meet in March to decide on a final proposal, which will be presented to the City Council in August. You can share your thoughts in an online survey, which can be found both on the City of Madison Parks Division website and on lakemononawaterfront.org. The survey closes on March 23rd. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Aaron Ashley. It's now 6.23 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We finish off our coverage of the primary election for Alder in District 12 by talking with Julia Matthews. UW-Madison employee, Matthews spoke with WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout about what moved her to want to represent Madison's northeast side. The 2023 spring primary election is on February 21st, and this year there will be seven districts with at least three candidates running for an alder seat, all of which will require a primary election. One of those districts is District 12 on the east side of Madison, containing the Dane County Airport down to the Yahara River over at Burr Jones Park off of East Johnson. One of the five candidates running in that primary election is Julia Matthews, who joins me now by phone. Julia, thank you so much for for talking with me today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. So, Julia, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Yeah, um, so I have lived in Madison my entire life. I work at the university. I went through MMSD schools, and I just really love Madison a lot. <laughs> um, I'm the oldest of three kids, and I live in Emerson East neighborhood with my partner. Uh, we rent from someone who owns a house here. And now, Julia, why are you running for Alder of District 12? So I'm running for Alder because, um, like I said previously, I really love Madison, but I know there are a lot of disparities across the city and across the district. And I also know with the kind of increasing populations and the growth that is coming to the city, Um, housing is becoming more and more of an issue. And me and my partner even saw that in the last year. We were renting another uh, unit of like a subdivided house that was four, it had four apartments. And um, in the span of just a couple months, it was sold by the previous owner last year and we had to find a new place to live. And so we really just kind of got thrown into the rental market in a way that I haven't experienced in the past. Like, I've, you know, I've had a lot more planning and stuff involved. And so that was just kind of like a real eye-opener. And as someone who has lived in Madison my whole life, I, you know, it, it really just hurts. And it it's really hard to see people already being pushed out of the city. And I know that's happening every day around Madison. And as the city continues to grow, I just really want to make sure that 
people aren't being pushed out and that as we're building new housing and, and trying to find ways to keep up that it isn't being built in such a way that the only people who can afford to move here are like the wealthiest people. So yeah, I definitely, I mean, I'm still pretty young, but I'm getting older and just, you know, have been starting to think more about what my future could look like in Madison and what the future of other young people is in the city. And I just, I really want there to still be a place for us and for everyone who's here and has been here for a long time. And now I want to take a look at the city of Madison as a whole. If elected as Alder of District 12, what are the most pressing issues that you would want to address facing the entire city? Yeah, so for the city as a whole, I think housing is a huge issue. I know just like the overall supply is down. People who are wanting to buy houses aren't even able to find them. And the the costs have risen drastically there. And that's also affecting the cost of renting. Rent prices just keep going up. And the city really hasn't been keeping pace with creation of new housing for the increases in population. So I think that will be just continue to be a really big issue citywide for, you know, the next council and even after that as the city continues to grow. And you mentioned housing a couple of times there, and I want to get into a couple of key issues. So let's start off with there. What sort of things would you like to utilize to bring more affordable housing to Madison? Continue using the tax incremental financing to help support projects that might not have been able to be profitable enough otherwise to have a larger share of affordable housing. Also, especially with the north side and some of these areas that we are putting affordable housing into now, it'll be important to have a mix. Like we we have, uh, District 12 especially has put in a lot of new affordable housing developments recently that are more like 100% or like completely affordable, which is also great. But having a mix of affordable units and like more reasonable market rate units is a good way to make sure that there's just like a balance in the community as well. And then, yeah, I think continuing to look for grant money that can help fund more affordable housing. Like I know we've had um, a few like extra grants recently with the pandemic, but just continuing to kind of look for those creative ways to really support bringing more affordable housing into the city, as well as um, more reasonable market rate housing for folks that are, you know, just outside of those ranges for officially affordable units, but still don't have enough money to be paying some of these wild and high market rate rents. Now, another pretty big issue facing the city right now is transit, public transportation, and now network redesign is set to take into effect later this summer. Bus rapid transit coming up down the pipeline here. How how do you feel about that, the network redesign and bus rapid transit? Um, I definitely am supportive of the bus rapid transit. I think it's a good idea and it will help to, you know, drive more more density while also making it easier for folks to use the buses. I do think with the metro redesign, there are a lot of valid concerns about access to the north side, especially of District 12 and beyond into the the rest of the north side as well as the south side. And those are two areas that have kind of in the past seen a lot more of like the disparities of the city. So I do hope that that there will be like 
drive to come up with solutions for those folks. And I definitely, as Alder, will be, you know, looking into how I can support the north-south bus rapid transit faster because I think that will help obviously a lot with access to those areas. But even in the meantime, making sure that we can find some solutions for those people. And on the final issue that I want to touch on is the F-35 fighter jets. Now, I know that these are more dealt with at the county level here in Madison, but they do certainly have pretty big impacts on the city as a whole and especially District 12 there. Uh, so how, how do you feel about the F-35 fighter jets? Yeah, they definitely are going to have a huge impact on, as you said, the city as a whole, but especially with the redistricting, it's kind of been you know, the the worst of the effects are going to be concentrated throughout District 12. And I write the, the county and the city and the state level is where the most power has been for that. But I do think that the city has more that they could be doing, especially with regards to noise mitigation. Currently, the only noise mitigation plans um, and funds are coming from the airport. And the metrics being used to determine that affected area is very small. So I think there's definitely an opportunity for the city to kind of expand that access and also to come up with some additional funds to help the existing housing to have the noise mitigation it needs. I also think that we need to have a little bit more strict or just like, right, a, a better look at some of the other environmental concerns. Um, the city has the power, like they could be running some of their own environmental studies. I, I talked with someone from Safe Skies, Clean Water, back in, I think, December. And right, the city is could run their own environmental studies and just kind of like see what it would mean to look at peak sounds or, you know, testing for PFAs and things like that. I do think it's a citywide issue and truly a shame that we're continuing to pollute the lakes that make Madison such an incredible and unique place to live. But yeah, noise mitigation is going to be, you know, one of the biggest, the biggest issues that District 12 is going to have to fight for, whoever is the alder. And yeah, I know the, the sound definitely extends beyond District 12. My aunt lived over by the east side woodmans and she actually ended up moving out of the city when she retired and one of the big reasons for that was the f-35s coming so i definitely i know it's it's going to affect all of us and i wish they weren't coming but there's still more we can do to kind of mitigate the impacts once they get here well julia do you have just any final thoughts that you would like to share with us here so yeah like i said i just I really love Madison, and I'm definitely kind of like a policy nerd myself, so I'm excited for that aspect of of being an alder, but I'm also really excited to to be able to do more community engagement and really, you know, reach out to folks in the district and, you know, proactively get people more involved in the process at the earliest stages possible, which I know is maybe easier said than done, but I'm really excited to you know, build community here and get more people involved in the process that maybe haven't been able to do that in the past. 
I've been talking with Julia Matthews, one of the five candidates running in the spring primary election for District 12 Alder. That primary election takes place on February 21st, with the 2023 spring general election taking place on April 4th. Julia, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. It was great. Time is now 6.34, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. It's been nearly three years since the COVID-19 pandemic forced local and state governments to begin holding open meetings virtually. Now it looks like virtual meetings are here to stay. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. This week on Transparency Talk, WORT contributor Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, look at the pros and cons of virtual versus in-person meetings. And now a quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so please seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. is every other Thursday, which means, as is tradition, I'm joined on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you holding up this week? Hey, Jonah, I'm doing good. Happy Groundhog Day. Happy Groundhog Day, Tom. We were talking about this before we got on the call, but I have no idea why we trust a groundhog to give us the weather forecast. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Today, we're talking about open meetings. And specifically, you recommended that we focus on in-person versus virtual meetings, both of which have pros and cons when it comes to engaging the public and the function of our democracy. Now, a lot of our listeners here in Madison may know, but Madison government is sort of in this like weird hybrid thing right now. Some of our public meetings are virtual, some are in-person, some are hybrid, virtual, and in-person. Our neighbors over in Wadakee, meanwhile, have decided that it's important for at least the elected official to attend the meeting in person. So, Tom, let's turn our attention about, you know, nearly exactly three years ago when COVID broke out. That's sort of when this whole debate began, right? That's when a lot of public meetings moved virtually. Yeah, that's when we saw this rapid rise. And I I think by and large, government entities in Wisconsin did a really good job of quickly transitioning to these new technologies and getting set up for virtual meetings uh, so that people could watch from the safety of their own homes and members could attend from the safety of their own homes to avoid spreading during the epidemic. That's great. And just as a reminder too, the attorney general had said even before COVID that this kind of thing is usually permissible. It's okay to have a telephone conference for a meeting or a virtual conference for a meeting, so long as the public can attend and you make sure that there is a dial-in phone number to use or a uh, website link to follow to watch this. So as COVID lessened, we saw more places transitioning to kind of a hybrid uh, meeting style where they were both in person and virtual at the same time, uh, especially because uh, in places that already had equipment set up for it. It was very little work in most cases to go from doing it all virtually to, well, still holding it in person, but offering the virtual option for people to to attend that way. So 
in my opinion, I, I like it when they keep it hybrid. I know some places have said, oh, we're far enough past, we don't need a hybrid at all. There's really no reason to, to get rid of that option once you have it going, once you have it there. It doesn't cost a whole lot. So there are pros, though, to attending in-person or attending virtual. Each sort of has, you know, its benefits, right? Yeah, I like that there's, when they have the hybrid meetings, you get to choose. Everybody in the public gets to choose, do I want to go to this in-person meeting? Because I'll, you know, I'll get to see the, the members' body language and their expressions. Anything that happens off camera, I can see it. Sometimes it's easier to hear in the hall if their audio equipment isn't that good. And and one of the things I know I hear a lot from journalists of why they go to the in-person meetings still is because it gives them a chance to talk to the board members either beforehand or afterward to get comment or to ask questions. And public can do that too. But if you want to attend virtually, hey, you don't have to drive there. It, it takes up less time of your day and you can multitask while you're watching this uh, on your computer while you're doing something else too and listen to the parts that are that are interesting to you. And it's open to anybody in the world with an internet connection. Anybody anywhere can attend one of these meetings virtually if they have access to an internet connection or they have a library nearby that does. It uh, gives a, an awful lot of new ways to, to expand the reach of government meetings. Now let's look at the other participants in any government meeting, and that would be the elected officials. Is it better to have them in person or virtual in your opinion? So like Wanaki just recently decided, most places that have addressed this issue have decided, let's have our people here in person. We are going to bring the people into the meeting, make sure that our committee members are all here as much as possible. Now, if there's the hybrid option is nice if you have uh, emergencies or if somebody has a medical issue and, and is just sick and doesn't want to get other people sick and they don't, don't want to attend, but they still want to be participating, they can come in hybrid. So usually you see a... Uh, usually you see that kind of for cause reasons for people to to attend virtually, even if there is a, a mandate or requirement that it's supposed to be in person. From the different reasons I've heard given for this, it leads to better participation. I mean, the, the ability to multitask is great for us watching, but I don't think we want our board members multitasking quite so much when they're there doing the public's work. Uh, they don't have uh, so much of distractions if they're there in person. And they're more available to their constituents there too. Like what I said, with pe people can talk to them beforehand and afterwards. Yeah, you don't want your alder doing their laundry while an issue that might greatly affect your life is up for debate. Um, so this conversation so far has mostly focused on sort of local government, local issues, um, you know, getting involved there. But looking sword, sort of towards a news hook, it looks like the Wisconsin legislature is weighing a proposal that would allow people to watch parole decisions in essentially real time. Tell me more about that, Tom. So one important back, back piece of story for this is Wisconsin doesn't have parole anymore. After, after 2000, there's uh, anybody convicted after the year 2000 is not eligible for parole. Instead, there's truth in sentencing laws, which means when the judge sentences you, the judge says, four years in prison, two years on extended supervision. So you're out on probation. And, and there's no discretion on, can you leave early? Is there good time served? None of that. It's, you're going to be there for four years, and then you're going to be uh, talking to your probation officer for two years, things like that. But prior to 2000, it was uh, like it is in a lot of places where there's this parole board that hears appeals from inmates who are eligible for parole saying, I should be let out for these reasons. And so you have 
government decision makers making some really important decisions and it's all behind closed doors and and right now all you can do is file some record requests and see that but they don't keep all their decision making down on paper they they go through it during these meetings so if this proposal passes we'll be able to watch those in real time mm. so i'm assuming that would be closer to how like I can watch an oral argument before the Wisconsin Supreme Court on Wisconsin, I, for example, but like, it's not like a public input meeting. This would just be more so that the public can keep a watchful eye on what is happening. Is that a good read? There's no, there's no way these parole meetings would become like public involvement meetings, essentially. Correct. There's no public participation in them, uh, aside from perhaps, you know, you know, victim statements might be part of that, uh, included in there, but, uh, you know, one thing to keep in mind with this is, like I said, these are only from convictions prior to 2000. So that means somebody asking for parole now has been in prison for 23, 22 years, which means they were convicted of something really serious. You do not stay in prison for 20 years unless you did something really, really awful. Well, you know, I love it when we can end our shows with a news hook. Uh, so, folks, keep an eye out on that as it moves through the legislature. Really interesting bill and really interesting topic to keep your eye on. For the time being, I've been joined on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, thanks as always so much for joining me this week. It's always my pleasure, Jonah. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. After a brutal cold snap this week and more mild weekend, a more mild weekend ahead of us, the ice conditions are just about perfect for ice fishing around Dane County. Nate Wiggy Hout and Pat Hansberg round up this week's fishing report on fishy business while reminding everyone that even while the ice looks safe, it's always important to double check. Alrighty, I'm on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Uh, Pat, let's start off with the uh, ice conditions. What's, uh, what's the ice looking like out there? Well, the ice across the chain is uh, in great shape, actually, um, uh, although I'm sure you probably saw in the news a couple of reports of a f- few folks going through, uh, one tragically over there on, on uh, Lake Wabisa on Saturday. But, um, you know, it, that, that just goes to show you, you never really know um, how safe the ice is anywhere, but, and you should always use caution. But, um, yeah, it's uh, otherwise around the chain the ice is in in really good shape they're going out over deep water on lake monona and mendota all the shallow waters got plenty of ice generally yes and with that as always like he said always the caveat that check the ice before you go out please and just just make sure that you're staying safe and everything but uh just going going from there let's take a look at some of the fishing conditions what's uh what's been happening around town well, up here on the north side, um, they're still getting some good uh, bluegills and crappies in a lot of shallow areas. Uh, Cherokee Marsh has been uh, was really hot here for a few weeks. It's kind of cooled down a little bit uh, on the fishing side of things, but uh, the perch out over the deep water have really picked up now that we have safe ice out there. Folks are running ATVs all over Lake Mendota, and they're getting uh, good perch, mostly in the West Basin area. In, a, in anywhere from 60 to 65 and even approaching 70 feet of water. So um, they're out over the deep water getting good numbers of perch out there. Uh, pike and walleye continue to be pretty active in shallow areas around the lakes and, and on mid-lake humps. And, yeah, it's um, Mendota is, is, is in full swing as far as, as ice fishing goes. Well, then let's take a look at over at uh, Lake Monona. Anything happening over there? 
Well, Lake Monona is has really actually been. I was just talking to a guy before you called here, and uh, you know it, it it's been slow for him, and they've been um, out cruising around looking for schools to perch. They can find them, but they can't get them to bite very well. Uh, but there are schools to perch out there. One area of caution for folks is um, on the, I guess it'd be the east end of the lake on the Monona side off Tony Watha Trail. That area, there's an area they call it Rock Pile out there. That ice has uh, been, well, there's a patch out there that's been open water for quite some time. I think it's capped over now with this cold snap we've had. But um, I would advise people to be careful in that area. But otherwise, they've got uh, solid eight inches around the whole lake, and, and people are, uh, like I said, struggling with the perch, but the walleye bite shallow seems to be good. Uh, still still hanging on to that bite pretty well, and, and lots of pike in Monona, too. So a lot of good action out there still to be had. Um, Monona Bay still is uh, producing a ton of small bluegills, but I've heard that the crappies have moved in there. So uh, some good crappie action coming off uh, the Brittingham Park areas on Monona Bay. Well, then let's move over to Alwabisa uh, and that area over there. What's been happening there? Well, of course, uh, on Wabisa was where that uh, uh, guy unfortunately went through with his ATV and 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 didn't make it out. And um, you know, it's very unfortunate. He was on the north end of the lake where uh, Mud Lake kind of uh, comes through. The uh, used to be a train trestle, now it's a bike path over there. And um, you know, there's there's some current there, and current can do weird things to ice that. Um, you know, like we, we say over and over again, just uh, use caution. But uh, generally, the rest of the lake has anywhere from 8 to 10 inches on it. And is um, they're getting uh, some decent perch out in the main basin, although that bite can also be kind of hit or miss with some finicky fish. Um, but they're uh, getting walleyes down near the Bible Camp area and Hog Island areas. So that's been good. And I've been hearing about uh, a decent bluegill bite, as long as you can find some good green weeds, uh, chances are you'll find some, some decent panfish in there. Keeping it short this week here, Pat, do you have just any final fishing advice for the people out there? Well, it looks like uh, we got a cold snap coming here tomorrow, and uh, then, you know, it looks like some great temperatures over the weekend, and all next week looks like temps in the 30s, so great opportunities for folks to get out and uh, enjoy the great fishing the Madison area has to offer. Well, I've been talking with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here. Remember, uh, you can always hear an updated fishing report anytime you want just by calling 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thanks again for talking with me, and good luck out there. Thanks, Nate. Always a pleasure. According to the Gregorian calendar, the new year starts on January 1st. That's not the case for contributor Jennifer Fields. Her new year starts in February. So to kick off her new year, Fields is taking Radio Chipstone in a different direction with a focus on making. A needlework sampler is often a collection of needlework created by a young woman for the purpose of showcasing her talent. And Dr. Sophie Pittman is the Pleasant Roland Textile Specialist and Research Director for the Center for Design and Material Culture at UW-Madison. Pittman specializes in the study of and repair of historical garments. In this episode of Radio Chipstone, Fields and Pittman discuss the history of textiles and the often lost identity of those who made them. One of the things that I'm particularly interested in trying to recover through reconstruction is something about the maker that they haven't left behind in text. Although in these samplers, often they do leave some 
traces of language. Sometimes you do get words, um, notes, dates, things like that. But it, through all, all objects, can reconstruction get us in closer sympathy or start making us think about the emotional possibilities that that maker experienced or was working through when they were creating an object? So I'm, I'm interested not just in skill and in innovation and craft and those kinds of issues, although those are really at the, the heart of the work that I'm interested in, but I'm also interested in, in emotions and how lives connect to objects and how we might think about makers' lives. Often these makers were not leaving any other trace um, or documents. So can we, can we think of them as sort of emotional beings through these objects. So I, I really love the idea of you reflecting on, you know, how you feel about making these things. I was also in thinking about this in terms of your work, that and, and cultural and identity, like making mm. an identity and, and garments and identity and who you become. Because yes. part of my thing is that, you know, as an African-American woman, we had to do a DNA test to find out our history. Right. And in finding all that out, there's all these things that are coming up about who we were and where we came from that we didn't know. And so I decided that I have a thing for like I love to buy clothes and I love to shop. So I decided that for an entire year and I've been doing it for a year, except for my friend's wedding, because you really can't show up in a, you can't be in a wedding in some old clothes. But mm-hmm. I decided that I could not buy anything new. If I wanted anything new, I'd have to make it. And in making Great. it, it would have to have some reflection on my my newfound cultural identity. So it's mm-hmm. like this, you know, giving up an old way and reaching out and finding a new way that would also be closer to who I am. So I think that with all of these components that we can do this, I think this could work. That's fascinating. So how far are you into that project? Have you had a year or are you still early in the... I've had a year of not buying, except for I did buy garments from my friend's wedding, which fine. Yeah. <laughs> She's my best friend. You just can't be like, girl, <laughs> I'm wearing my overalls. <laughs> so that wouldn't work. <laughs> so I've done the year of not buying. And I've been using this year to like really pay attention and collect stories and things and experiencing with my friends. For example, my friend and I went to the Lizzo concert on the square. Yes. And at one point she said, man, not Lizzo, Tank and the Bangers. And she was like, oh, we need a fan. And I was like, you know what? I can make a fan and talk about this night. Because mm-hmm. it was the first time I did anything after the pandemic. Well, I'm still in pandemic. And I was really nervous about going. And we sat like up at the Capitol. So we were hundreds of feet away from the crowd. And, we, and it was just a really nice night and a nice welcome back into life with somebody that I always go to live shows with. And so, so it's like remembering little moments like that and sort of maybe tying them to culture, you know, current events and, you know, how, how does the past reflect what's happening now and the future in these, Mm -hmm. and the ideal about you using new technology to, to uh, rescue these, these objects, these garments that have seen somewhere. So it's, it's like all of this sort of mixed in together. That sounds great. Yeah. And I, 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 I love that you mentioned a fan because Often things like fans, when people look at fans in collections, they think about fashion or frippery or luxuries, things like that. And and actually, just as you explained, fans are not necessarily just a sign of 
that you want to be fashionable or that you're showing off. They have a practical function. They're trying to keep you cool in a in a pandemic. They're keeping airflow, but also they they can contain these memories that are deeply personal for the person who's made or or used them. And and I I like to do that. I like to complicate objects and say, you know, clothing. It can be about fashion and style and showing off, but it can also be about all these other elements of one's identity that that run deeper and aren't necessarily fun and frivolous. That can be part of the story, but it, it's not the core. Uh, and I think that's so important because, because it's so associated with the women and women's work, it has been quite easily dismissed by other historians, other scholars as being superficial, when actually I think some of these, these stories really run deep and get to the heart of, of who people are and how they feel about themselves and how they, they connect to the world. Where did this come from for you? Where does this desire to to have these really deep and meaningful, not only connections with objects, but sort of get to the truth of what they are and what they mean? Where does that come from for you? It's a great question because it felt in a way like it came out of nowhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> like you, I, I sort of, there are scholars that I point to as being particularly influential. So I know that for you, Anne really launched you in this path. And and I would say for me, it was Laurel Thatcher Ulrich and Ivan Gaskell at Harvard. Um, I went there just for one year on a, a little fellowship and it was supposed to be exploratory. And it really was because I'd never thought about objects. I was a very traditional historian who looked, I did look at literature, but that was it. I was entirely text-based and I took a class with them which was uh, to prepare the exhibition for tangible things, which Sarah Carter worked worked on. And it just totally transformed my way of thinking about the past. And it, it just made sense. It just clicked. And I thought, of course, I've been working so hard to try to find texts that recover the lives of young women or um, people who were working makers, craftspeople, and they simply don't exist. I can't I can't wish textual sources into being that just didn't exist because the period I was most interested in, the 16th, 17th century, a lot of these people weren't, weren't literate, or even if they were, they, they couldn't afford the, the time or the materials to write things down. So all of a sudden, objects just, <laughs> of course, <laughs> this is another way in. So I have the kind of scholarly story that that's the path that I went down and these scholars introduced me to. But actually, the more I think about it, the more that I realized that this was in my in my bones or my DNA, my heritage too. Because on both sides of my family, my grandparents and great-grandparents, they were all craftspeople. So they were carpenters, shipbuilders. They were, they were making things with their hands and they, they weren't writing things down either. And my grandmother was very influential in my young life, taking me shopping. And we would spend all this time in department stores and thrift stores. She was incredibly thrifty. And we would we try on all in, in department stores, we try on all these fancy hats that we were never going to buy. But you know, it was <laughs> our, our day out. That was what we did for fun. And she gave me this joy and fascination for for hats and gloves and feather boas and anything fun we could get our hands on. But then she also taught me how to hunt through rails at charity shops and, and thrift stores and how we could sort of recreate these these things ourselves on 
on a, on a budget and with, with sort of more creativity. So actually I sort of have the, the scholarly tale of, of how I came to it, but then I also have this, this realization that no, no, this was, this was already being taught to me as a child. I just didn't realize it. That's really funny because your grandmother is probably the age that my mother would be. Mm. And it was the same thing. Like her joy in life was to be like, oh, I can. And she, if she saw, if we went shopping and she saw a dress, she would say, I can beat that. And yeah. like, okay. <laughs> and we'd go home and we'd make it. Oh, I could, I could beat that. I could, she would say, I could out, she'd also say, I could outpluck that, which in a way was saying that I can do this even better than you did it. And we'd right. go home and we'd make it. And that was our relationship to the point where I saw somebody in a swimming suit that I wanted. And she said that I was too young for it. So I went home and when she was at work, I made it. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I was like 10. <laughs> right. And you're like, I can do that. I've, I've, I've seen it. I've seen it in action. I know what to do now. <laughs> I can do it. And, it. and that is that sort of thing. Cause that, that's part of what I want to get at too, is that when you look at these books, they really are the, the technical enough. And I've found some examples and I need to go find some more, but it's really is about the technical aspect. And you don't know yes. about the person who was doing this incredibly fine often beautiful work. And it seems to be something that women and poor people are sort of like put in this box. You might not even be able to afford the place, a space to have these things to store textiles, to have a machine or have the time to do it or have the money to purchase it. And if you were doing it, chances are you were doing it for someone else for very low wages. So even right. though you made these beautiful garments, the chance, that the, the opportunity for you to keep them was rare. Yes. Yep. And your and life I, I is sort of lost so in those stitches. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no. I, I, but that's a beautiful way to say it. Your life is lost in the stitches. You know, C can we recover it? You know, and, and can we look at these objects, not just through the lens of the people who probably owned them, but who made them? Um, I think that's such an important point to make. People often look at the material past and say, well, it's unrepresentative because museums and families have tended to only keep the best things. So this is just telling us the stories of the upper class, the elite. But if we look at the makers, those objects aren't just elite. They're not. They're, sure, they were owned by the elite. They were made for the elite, but they weren't always made by the elites. And that I think that's so important. You know, are their lives lost in the stitches? Or is there a way that by recreating those stitches, we can think about those those people who made the objects, not just the people who wore them and enjoyed them later in that object's life story. And that's a wrap. Your headline writer was Peter Voller. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporters tonight were Aaron Ashley and Faye Parks. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonah Chester, Tom Kamenick, Pat Hansberg, and Jonathan Fields. Nate Wiggy House produced this newscast, and Ms. Shali Pittman engineered tonight's show, and she also is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Stay tuned for the Perpetual Notion Machine on WORT Madison.